our Father in heaven, uh, as we open your word, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Um, God, we pray that you'd be gracious to help us to understand, to help us to know you. Uh, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us in such a way that would cause us to trust you more, to love you more. That we might be engaged in this life to which you call us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Acts in chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4. I want to read uh, verses 23 um, to 31. Acts in chapter 4, please. Please hear the word of God. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant by the Holy Spirit, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal, to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now what I want to do this morning, if God will help me, um, is to use this passage to help us persevere, uh, to continue in the faith, to love God, um, even in the midst of, of tragic events that happen in the course of uh, of our lives, as I said, uh, I'm going to speak more technically probably about this on Wednesday. I'm not going to bring on all the technical theological things this morning, but uh, speak this morning frankly from my heart, uh, as I hope I always do from the scriptures. Uh, in a more pastoral kind of, kind of way, I want to use this text uh, and not skip to another. It's, again, amazing to me how it is that God provides week after week just as we read the Bible together. Many of you tell me that unbeknownst to me, various passages, just as we take them up one after another, hits exactly where you live, hit exactly certainly where I live in the course of my life. It's true in the life of our church that we happen along passages, just come to the next one, and it seems to speak to where we are as a community of believers. Again, as things happen in our world, rarely do I have to deviate in order to find a passage to meet whatever it is that we're experiencing politically, socially, economically, or whatever, and I think that is true as well uh, this morning. So I want to stick to this passage. I read it last Sunday. Had an inkling to continue on in it, and that inkling was inspired uh, by the events of Monday. Certainly, uh, as a country, as a community of people, as human beings, uh, we have no words to describe the feelings that must be true uh, for those who have lived through that event. Uh, we can only think of the victims of Monday's shooting, the terror that must have been through their systems, through their bodies, through their minds, hearts, 
the moment as gunshots began to go off. We can only imagine those who survived it, uh, what they're experiencing even today, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. I suspect for all who went through it in that way, it's a life-changing, transforming, uh, informing experience, all in some way, some very significantly, uh, both emotionally, but even physically. I don't know the extent to all the injuries and, and, and the prolonged um, physical disabilities that may be true uh, because of the events of that one moment that seemed to be random at that particular point in time. We can only imagine the grief of the parents of the children. Uh, We can only imagine uh, the grief of the spouses uh, who lost those they loved on that day. Can't not be affected even here, uh, as we sit and observe just as people, uh, one to another, uh, what that must be like in their lives. Uh, friends who have been lost, fiancés, no doubt. Uh, we know in the midst of this situation there were believers, Christians who were lost. Uh, those from various ministry organizations reporting various ones that they knew. And so we can only imagine that. We can only imagine the pain uh, of the parents of this young man, what they must be experiencing uh, because of his evil, wicked choices and and acts, their own second-guessing of themselves, perhaps as parents, their own wondering if they even knew him, their own wondering what they could have done, their sense of feeling of responsibility for this event and knowing that there's probably no way that that can ever be resolved Uh, and yet they'll live with that uh, for the rest of their lives just wondering how they're going to interact in their family, uh, in their neighborhood socially uh, and whatever effects this may have uh, have to them Uh, we can only think of that campus and other campuses and just the loss of the innocence, whatever that may be in the context of, of, of being a student and you know, on a campus and pursuing one's goals and desires and now to have it affected uh, at least in this time by this kind of event and this cloud that is over them, the administrators, the security people wondering uh, all of that, why this took place, how if ever could be prevented or at least made safer in our community. No doubt senses throughout that community and throughout the country of anger, of outrage, that such a thing can take place. And a measure of fear as well. How is it that we can live in a world where one can go to something as common as a class and perhaps be in danger unknowingly, but perhaps be in danger? And so it seems to me that we can't not think of this. And in light of this passage, because the disciples of Jesus were threatened. Their very well-being was threatened, honestly threatened, in a real kind of way. Here they were speaking in the name of Jesus. Here they were taken in front of the most powerful authorities that they knew. And at least this was out in in the open. At least it was up front. That here, uh, 
threats were made against them. And these threats would be acted on. They had already been arrested to be arrested again. And God, in various ways, would release them in, in rather mysterious and miraculous ways. But still, they would be arrested. Still, some would be beaten. Still, some would be killed. It wouldn't be too long before a terrorist named Saul of Tarsus would arise and come against them in very real ways and throw them in very real prisons and beat them and have them beaten in very real ways with real pain and real blood and real bruises. And it wouldn't be too long when one named Stephen would be killed. And again, we read through this, but we have to remember, of course, that Stephen had a mother and a father. And who knows what other relationships he had, siblings. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We don't know anything about him like that. We just simply, we read through that and we say, yes, Stephen was martyred, but we have to remember all the ramifications of that and all the real honest, honest pain of that. Not unlike, not unlike what took place on Monday. Because people would have viewed Stephen as a good man, as a man who was innocent of of, of what happened to him in a sense. It shouldn't have happened. It, it was done unjustly. It was evil. It was wicked to kill this man, Stephen. Um, later on, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is killed by Herod. <clears throat> Interestingly, and we'll come to this in Acts chapter 12, James was killed at about the same time that Peter was released miraculously from prison. And so that community of believers are Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep all, all at the same time. But we have to remember that James had brothers, that James had a mom, that James had friends, that James had people who loved him and who no doubt saw him as their pastor, an apostle, one who brought to them the very word of God. And now here he was killed. And the disciples of Jesus lived in the midst of those kinds of threats with this comfort, giving them this courage that God was sovereign. Notice how they put it. Verse 24. And when they heard it, that is, they heard about the threats that were made, uh, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. As we mentioned last week, that's one Greek word that here in the ESV is translated into two words, Sovereign Lord, because that's how we would express it uh, in English, the best, so as not to be misunderstood because the word in Greek means absolute ruler. There is no one else who governs. There is no one else who rules. There is no one greater than this one. There is no one that can thwart the decrees of this one who is the sovereign Lord. Uh, and the way that theologians has put that over the years is that God decrees everything that comes to pass. In other words, God is the one who ordains all things that come to pass because he's the sovereign ruler. No one else can thwart him. No one else can do anything other than what he ordains to come to pass. He isn't surprised by anything. Uh, everything passes by him in one sense or another. Either in his direct causation, we might say, or other people like to use the word that he permits this or permits that. However it is that soothes you, soothes you as you think of these things, the truth is that God is God. 
Now, interesting for the disciples is that they're, in a sense, expressing that God is sovereign over the threats of these people. In other words, they're real threats. They don't know it yet, but it will happen, and I guess that they, I speculate that they anticipate it will happen. They don't ask God to remove these threats, even though he's sovereign over them, and he could but they're going to live in the midst of these threats, knowing that God is sovereign over them, and therefore, if they're acted upon, therefore, if anybody's thrown into prison, therefore, if anybody is beaten, therefore, if anyone is killed, then they realize that that ultimately passes through the mind, the hand, the heart of God. That it isn't random. That it isn't purposeless. That indeed, in some sense, some significant sense, it comes by way of the ordination of God. That doesn't mean that God is saying this is good. That it doesn't mean that God is saying this is right. That doesn't mean that God is saying this is pure. That doesn't mean that God is saying this is holy. It is evil and it is sin, but we see that in the midst of God as the sovereign one, he ordains even evil to take place in our world for his purposes and his designs. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I talk about this, and if you can't hear me, it's because, well, you can hear me because Jeff is really good at this. But if you were standing next to me, I'm whispering almost because these are things about which human beings shouldn't even know. We only know these things because God has revealed them to us. This is mysterious to us. It's deeper than we could ever go in anything. But even to say these words, because we know that God isn't the author of evil. We know that God doesn't himself do evil, and yet he ordains it. How does that happen? We're not quite sure. We can only declare it to be so, because we know that God is good, and that he is light, and there is no evil. There's no unrighteousness. There's no unholiness in him at all. And yet, for his purposes, that is so that he might be more glorified, he ordains evil, to exist, and I'll prove that to you from the scripture in a minute that he ordains it. It'll be clear to you. You won't be able to deny it. I can't even as I read it because of how they put it. And we also know, amazingly, that while God ordains this wickedness and, and evil and, 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 and even in the midst of human beings making real choices, that the choices we make are real and we're responsible for them even though he's sovereign over all things, even though we couldn't make a choice without him ordaining it, even though we couldn't do something without he ordaining it, we still know that he holds us responsible for those choices. In Romans 9, the apostle rhetorically asked the question, well, how can God hold us responsible if in fact no one can resist his will? And that's where he says, well, of course, we have to stop talking now. He says, you're the clay, he's the potter. This is the best we can do. I can only declare it to you that this is so. So though we can't understand it, we can understand why we don't understand it. The reason we don't understand it is this is something that's true in God and something not accessible to human beings to understand. So we don't understand it, but we know why we don't understand it. And the reason we don't understand it is because this is something unique to God. It isn't something that's of us. Again, that's why we speak of these things in hushed kind of terms. We don't scream them at people. We don't shout them because who are we 
This is just the deep things of God. Now, the reason that we know that God ordains this evil and even works through his works his purposes through the choices of wicked people is what happened to Jesus. But before we get there, let me just read through this. Verse 24, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together your against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice what they're doing. Notice how God being absolute ruler informs. He says, God, you're the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the creator of that. You're the owner of all of that. You're the governor of all of that. We use in our theological orientation the word providence, that God rules by his providence, that he governs all things, that he sustains all things. Hebrews, for instance, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 puts it like this. He, of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains it. He's created it, but he sustains it. And at any one moment in time, God says, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so God, Jesus, the very Son of God, the radiance of the being of God, upholds everything by the word of his power. He lives so that all can be sustained. You know the old saying from Descartes, I think, therefore I am. No, 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 no. God thinks, therefore we are. If he stops thinking, then we're not upheld, we're not sustained, we don't exist anymore. And so, God sustains everything. And again, think about what that means. He's the creator of all that is. He governs all that is. He sustains all that is. So, He's the creator of the heavens and everything in them, which means everything that goes on in the heavens is under the rule of God. That is, when I'm sitting at the baseball park on a beautiful day, because in the heavens is this great sun and no clouds, and it's just a perfect day, that is ruled by God. But when it begins to rain, that is ruled by God. And when lightning strikes and kills, that is ruled. And when hurricanes come, that is not out of the governance of God because he's the sovereign one. Do do we see that? Again, how do we say these things? And he's the creator of the earth. And everything on the earth, from the core of the earth, whatever's rumbling on, up through it, to the tips of the mountains, to everything on it, to all the animals, all the insects, all the plants, all the weeds, all the people. When we look at the beauty of landscape, that's God. He rules over that. When an earthquake comes, he rules over that. 
when one animal eats another, he rules over that. When one human eats an animal, he rules over that. When one human loves another, he rules over that. When one human blesses another, he rules over that. When one human kills another, he rules over that. When cancer enters the body of a human being, he rules over that. When someone is healed, either miraculously or through medication, he rules over that. When great breakthroughs are, are made scientifically and techno technologically and medically and all of that, he rules over that. When we stumble and fall and can't think of how to help anyone in any one situation, he rules over that. Do we see that? And the thoughts that we have and the decisions that we make, he rules over that. Nothing is autonomous from him. We're not pantheists. That is, we don't believe that God is everything and everything is God. He creates. We're distinct from him in that sense. But he rules over it all and we're not independent, autonomous of him. We are dependent upon him. Those who say Christ is Lord are ruled by God. Those who raise their fist at him and deny him governed by God. And then he says the sea and everything in it. So everything that is in the sea, although I'm not very good at sea stuff, but, but I know there's stuff in the sea. And, and so he rules over all of that. Uh, sharks who eat people and fish that we catch. And everything else there and tsunamis that flow from it. He rules over And thus, with the apostle, in thinking of these things, we simply have to stop and say this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You see, everything exists for the sole purpose of glorifying God. And blessing his people. Those two things aren't antithetical. Those two things go together. God glorifies himself and blesses his people. Everything that glorifies him is an ultimate blessing to his people. Everything that he does is an ultimate blessing to his people. That's why the scripture can say that God works all things together for good. For those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. His purpose, it says in the next verse, is to conform us to the image of Jesus. That glorifies him, that we may reflect him, that we may glorify him. And so all of God's purpose is to bring glory to himself. And we ask the question then, God, why must you ordain evil to glorify yourself? And again, we speak in very hushed terms here. Who can know the answer to that question? But we do know that he did. He ordained that Adam and Eve would sin, that sin and death would enter into the race. Why? So that Christ could come and show his glory. That Christ could come and show the great wisdom of God. Because Christ is the very wisdom of God. He says, look, who could solve this dilemma? Only God can. God can't acquit the guilty because he's holy. And so how are any to be saved? How can any to be rescued? How is the mercy of God to be shown to any? And Jesus says, well, here's how. I'll take it. You can't die for your own sins and then be saved. 
because you'll spend all of eternity dying for your own sins. That's the punishment of it. But Jesus says, I'm worth, my blood is worth so much. And I have no sin. And therefore, the Father will accept my sacrifice and, I, and I'm worth you all. So I'll die. And God can be just. That is, he can punish sin and injustice and still be the justifier of all who believe. Wow. He's the very wisdom of God. And who else could show the glory of God, the great justice of God? As we look at the cross, we see the great justice of God. There could be no deeper, no more significant, no more correct picture of the wrath of God than what happened to Jesus on that day. And being utterly then forsaken by his Father and crushed by him. But then how can we get a better picture of the love of God? The righteous dying for the unrighteous. The holy dying for the unholy. For God demonstrates his love to us in this. That is, it's God's kind of love. This kind of love is just unknown to us other than by God. For God demonstrates his love to us for this. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see the intense love of God there. And so he glorifies himself in Christ. He ordained this evil so that Christ could glorify God so that we would see the great worth of God's honor so that one as Christ, the very Son of God, would die, that his Father's honor would be upheld, would be magnified, would be seen. We see the very wisdom of God, the very love of God, and the very power of God in the cross. Oh, we see the power of God in creation. How else could we attempt to, to understand this creation? We see the very power of God, but we see it also in the cross because through it he overcame sin and death. So God is glorified by Jesus. And we realize, you see, that it's God's very working that brought Jesus to this point. Notice verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is to say, before the foundations of the world, God ordained that Christ would come and that Christ would die. He not only ordained that as sort of the end, but he also ordained all the means to get to that particular place. And he ordained that evil thoughts and evil intentions and evil decisions of wicked men would be the means through which Christ would die. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter puts it like this. Verse 23, as he's talking about Jesus, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Um, Again, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan, that would be the same as this predestination, the definite plan, and foreknowledge of God, not just simply that God knew what was going to take place, but, what, but God ordained what was to take place. And then these particular people killed, uh, crucified and killed uh, by the very hands of lawless men. God ordained all of that to come to pass. It was his hand and his plan. He governed over 
all of that. Now, for the disciples of Jesus, this gave them great courage. Now notice, they didn't, they didn't pray that God would take away the threats. Jesus has already told them about that. Jesus has already said, you live in a, in a world that's going to hate you. You live in a world that's fallen. You live in a world that, that because they hated me, they're going to hate you. He had already laid out, even to Peter, that a day would come when he would be taken uh, against his will and his arms would be stretched out. And the apostle says this is to indicate how Peter was going to die. Tradition tells us, not the Bible, but what we read from other sources, tells us that Peter died on a cross upside down. And they say, whether this is true or not, it was his request when they were going to crucify him that he not die in the same position as his master. They didn't pray to God to take away the threats. They prayed that God would give them courage because they knew that God was sovereign. They knew that God would work, could work in them. They knew that God governed them and, and could work in their own hearts and said, give us boldness, do this, show these signs and wonders so that we can continue to be your witnesses. And thus, it seems to me, as I understand this, as I'm applying this in my own life and context, that when such threats come and when such threats are made good upon, that is, when, when, when they're imprisoned, when they're beaten, when some among them are killed, their view would be this, that this fits into the eternal plan of God to glorify himself, that he might be shown to be king of kings and lord of lords, and that he might be shown to be great. And this is for his glory, and this is also for our good. And therefore we will embrace the decree of God, and we will worship him and we will witness of his goodness. If they thought it was random, they would never live in any sort of comfort. If they thought that, that, that Satan was simply on the loose, never under the bound of God, then they would never be able to live in peace, to be able to sleep at night, always be wondering. But they knew the threats existed. And this doesn't mean they wouldn't be prudent. God works through the means of our prudence. There were times when, when the word was, hey, get out of town, they're coming after you. Oh, that makes sense. Good for you, way to think. And there are times that they didn't, but God would lead them. But they knew that God was sovereign. They knew that threats couldn't be made without God's permission. They knew that beatings couldn't happen because God could stop it at a moment. He could cease to sustain those wicked thoughts. He, would, he could cease to sustain uh, those wicked activities. But they knew when they were coming that God has not abandoned us, that he's really here, that he's wise, so he knows exactly the best thing for his good, for his glory and our good, that he's loving, and therefore he will always not only know, but choose that which is best for his glory and our good. And he's powerful so that nothing can thwart him from bringing to pass that which is the fruit of his wisdom, the counsel of his will, the fruit of his wisdom and his love. Whatever that may mean, we love as Christians. The end of Romans chapter 8. 
as it begins with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We we live on that, don't we? Because we know that if he's foreknown us, that has chosen us before the foundations of the world, foreloved us, then we're predestined, our destiny set out. And we know that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And thus we know that those whom he has predestined in this way, he will call. And those whom he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. So we live in the security of that. And then verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, the answer to that on first reading is, there's a lot against us. Jesus said they're going to hate you. These threats were real. But we know what the apostle means here. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know you know all that's against you. You're frail. You're like dust. You know, cancer's against you. Uh, the wicked decisions that other people make are against you. But remember, God is sovereign. And he's Lord of all. For you. And you're good. And how do we explain these things? But, but that's what he's saying. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says, just think the logic of this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? But yet, we live, you and I, together here at Grace CPC. We live, I think, in one of the most realistic communities that anybody can live in. We live very much together We share a great deal of life together in this body. And we give birth to children. And we have, we watch them grow up together. And we see them as elementary school kids. We see them as junior highers and high schoolers and even college students. And then some of us uh, get married and some of us uh, then get jobs and some of us, hopefully that happens before they get married, it's always my hope for my children. But uh, and we live together and we share life together. And many of us are getting older before our very eyes. And, and I've done funerals at every age group. And we live that out together. God before us, who can be against us? But, 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 but these things happen, don't us? And it, How do we understand these things? By faith, really, by trusting him, that he is wise, that he is loving, that he is powerful, that he's the sovereign one. That's our comfort in the midst of these kinds of things that happen in our lives that we think shouldn't happen in our lives. We have to bow before him and and, and trust him in these things. We, We live realistic lives. On a given day, some may get a job. Another in our community may lose a job. Some may enter into what feels like financial security while someone else 
dives into what seems to be the, a, a financial free fall. And, and the word is the same to both. God is sovereign. He is wise. Even when it doesn't seem like it. And he loves us even when it feels painful. And he's powerful because he could stop it at any moment in time. And it's by his hand and his plan that these things come about. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus as the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, this doesn't mean when difficult things happen that God is against you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. For he goes on to say this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? Now, I've got to confess to you that probably 80% of the time that I've quoted this chapter to you and to me, I've skipped verse 36. It's, for your sake we're being killed all the day, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Because I never really understood why that was there. It just didn't seem to make sense to me. All this was such a nice passage after all. Why do you have to talk about being slaughtered? Well, because that's life. And though we're being slaughtered, it doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that his wisdom has ceased, that he's done something stupid or something that was wrong or that he didn't know about. He said, this is life. Tribulation comes. Distress comes. Persecution comes. Famine comes. Nakedness comes. Danger comes. The sword comes. In fact, all day long, people are being slaughtered. Even for the sake of Christ, received an email Thursday from another EPC pastor saying he was on his way to Turkey to visit with the Christians there because three Christian leaders had just been found with their feet tied and their throats slit. But then in verse 37... And all things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Okay? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these things happen. And how do we, how do we deal with it? By way of trusting God. That he is wise even when we can't see it, though he loves us, even when it doesn't feel like it. We know that he's powerful, that nothing comes to us apart from his hand. And that's what we continue to meditate on. That's where we continue to go back to. That's, that's where we continue to throw ourselves day after day after day. Now there are times like Monday when things hit big. How are we to relate to that? Why would God ordain such a thing? And again, please understand, I really believe myself to be the last one to speak for God in these kinds of matters. But let me just make these suggestions, observations, thoughts. One, in the context of my own life, I have to ask the question, how do I react to this? How do I respond to that? How would I live through something, something like this? How would that pass through me if I were a victim, if it were my children, if it were my spouse, if I were in that community? In some sense, I am in that community. I mean, we're, we're tied together as human beings. We get it. 
to that degree. And I don't mean to be presumptuous. I know I'm not there. I know that I'm not experiencing what they're experiencing. But I think you understand my heart and my point. How, what would happen? That could happen here. But I think first it, it just tells me, and I pray that as a world we see this, it tells us that evil is real and it's in us. It's very easy to look at this young man and, and be angry and, and outraged and condemn him and all of that sort of thing. And what he did was wrong. It was evil. Sinfully so, it would lead without Christ to his condemnation. There's no question about that. But yet, what I see as I read about him is self-centeredness taken to an extreme. Is bitterness taken to an extreme. Is anger taken to an extreme. And I have to be honest with you. I have to tell you. I mean, where I sit and with, with the people that I talk to and all the things that happens in the course of my life, anytime you come to me or anybody comes to me and they share a sin or they share a weakness, I can identify with that. I see it in me. Now, sometimes it hasn't manifested itself in me the way it's manifested itself in some other. I've never done what this young man has done. None of us here has, I suspect. But, but still, it's still the same root. And Jesus said, you know, you say you shouldn't murder, but have you thought about your anger lately? That's the very root of it, you see. And we can see the very root in us as well. And so... I see that and I pray that our world can see in something magnified like this that evil exists. Because you see, on any given day, there's way more than 32 people in this world unjustly killed. It just happened on one place, a place we're sympathetic to and should be sympathetic to and all of that. But the truth of the matter is we just sort of ignore all these other things and every so often a tsunami hits, whether it's a physical one or, or, or one like this or something big in our lives that, that shakes us all. And the question is, why did God allow that to take place? Why did that happen? And again, please, I'm, I'm not here to speak to all of God because I don't know all the mysteries of God, but I can sit back and look up and say, wow, I've been ignoring all the injustice. I've been ignoring all this sin. I've been thinking that life is just fine as it is going along and, and we can manage our own sinfulness and unholiness and we can keep it in a box and all will be fine. And then I look at this man and I go, no, I shouldn't be content with my level of sin. I shouldn't be content with our level of sin and how it manifests itself. Because look, unmask it, see the reality of it. And then it takes me to my knees, not simply to pray for these people, not simply to pray for our world, but to pray for me. That I might, that I too might repent of my sin. That God would be gracious to me. That God would protect me. That God would protect you from me. That my sin wouldn't manifest itself in ways like this or even like it does. That God transform my heart, transform my life. And then I have to ask the question, am I ready to die? I mean, you can ask the question, are we safe in this world? And of course the answer is no. 
not if you mean by safety that everything's going to be well, that this couldn't have happened to me, that I couldn't have been a professor at that university, that I couldn't have been, I couldn't have had a student in those classes. I mean, I, no, I, we, we can't think like that. We can't divorce ourselves from such an event. We live in a world where that kind of stuff happens. In that sense, we're not safe. Airplanes fall out of the sky. Trains wreck cars, wreck cancer happens. We're not safe in that sense. And so Jesus said, don't be afraid, though. <laughs> Jesus already had a way to kind of cut right to the chase. Don't be afraid, though, of those who can kill the body. Be afraid of the one who can send your soul to hell. So the question really is, am I ready to die? Because even in the midst of the tragedy of this situation, and, and as we might want to put it, if, outside of the sovereignty of God, that these people died prematurely. I mean, that, that's sort of what comes to mind, isn't it? We, we know in the sovereignty of God that our days are numbered and all that, but, but it just seems that when death happens this way, it wasn't supposed to. This, this, you know, people are supposed to, you know, sort of get sick and in 93 take their last and that be it. But, 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 but we know that doesn't happen. We know people died. Every single one of the people who died on that day would eventually have died earlier than they anticipated, I suspect. So the question that, that I have to think about, I think that the, the call of God through this, again, whatever else is taking place, is he's yelling to us, are you ready to, to meet me? And I know this is sort of hellfire and brimstone stuff, and I know this is sort of old-fashioned preaching, but it's really true. Are we ready to die? Because we will somehow, some way. And our hope is only in Christ as we meet him. But to say our hope is only in Christ is not a small thing. I mean, that's everything. Our hope is in Christ. He is the hopeful one. He is the one who brings, who brings hope. And we know that, you see. As we think through these things, as we contemplate them, we know that. Because he's the one uh, who has suffered and died for us. I mean, so many more things could be said. I'll say more things on Wednesday, but so many more things to be said. But even as we stop now, just to consider this in the context of our own lives, are we ready to die? Do we understand the nature of our own sin? Is there any hope for us? Are we safe? And to that question, eternally, spiritually, the answer is yes, because there was a night in which Jesus was betrayed, and at that point in time, he took bread, and after he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, then again, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as we think about the death of Christ, what do we think about? Let me suggest this first. Would you think about the governance of God, the sovereignty of God, that he rules all things for his glory, even the death of his son. And he creates a world so that his son could glorify him, and he ordains even evil so that his glory could be seen. That's way too great for us to even fathom. We couldn't do that. We can't. We're not allowed to create a world like that. But God in his sovereign wisdom, in his sovereign love, in his power, is able and does. And so his son comes and we proclaim his death, meaning that he died for us, 
that we might not be afraid to die. Whatever circumstance brings about our death, whether it's tragic in this sense, horrifying in this sense, or whether it appears to be graceful and sweet and all that. We need to be afraid. And it'll take us to a place where sin will be no more. We needn't fear it. We needn't worry about it. It will be no more. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our courage. That's why we bear witness to it so that others can know this. We know we can't stop the threats. We know we can't stop the death. We know we can't stop the danger. We know that. We have this thing about us as human beings that we're omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And so when anything happens, we go, oh, there's got to be a way to stop this. And we know ultimately we need to be as prudent as we can be, but we're still running around chasing our tails because we still know death happens. This is our hope. This is everybody's hope, anybody's hope. And there's no hope apart from this. That's where we live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, pray for me, for us, Lord. I would hear you through this event, through the scripture, at this table. That sin is horrible. We see the end results of selfishness and self-centeredness, bitterness and anger, and all that. And you'd again enable us to realize we're going to die somehow, sometime, some way. So I pray that you enable to live out our days trusting in you in the midst of the sadness and the difficulties of life, even the extreme sadness and difficulty of life that an event like this might bring to people and to bring to us even on occasion and other losses that may be so deep that we would consider your wisdom, consider your love, consider your power, and trust that you are at work perhaps in ways that we don't see. I pray now that as we come to this table that, Lord Jesus, you'll meet with us as the one who loves us, as the one who gave himself for us, as the one who intercedes for us, as the one who is for us, as the one who defends us, as the one who maintains the very grip of God upon us so that nothing can separate us from the love of God because the love of God is in Christ Jesus for us. So meet us here around this table. Take this bread, this juice, God, and use it in such a way that enables us to see Jesus, enables us to fellowship with him, enables us to be filled with him. the very wisdom, the very love, the very power of God. This, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it. All those who know that without him they're not ready to die. All those who know that without him they're not even ready to live. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy who receive and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. 
your desire to live trusting in him. That's true for you. Let me ask you to come these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. What should you think? What should you say to yourself? I trust you. You're wise. You're good. You're loving. You're powerful. I'm ready to die. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven. We have been thinking of things too deep for us, some too wondrous for us. So I pray that you would plant them within us appropriately, rightly, enable us to live from your word, to live from it, knowing that you are the sovereign one and we are not, that we would submit to you, to your wisdom, to your love, to your power uh, in all things. God, in the midst of us this morning, there are some for whom this is more difficult than for others, for the depth of their hurt, the depth of their loss, the realness of their fear. So I pray for them especially, that you would be very close, that they would leave this place, the great sense that you love them, that you are wise and your wisdom is for them and towards them and you are the sovereign, powerful one who will do that which is best for you know that which is best and you love deeply and nothing can thwart you. Father, enable us to submit to you and to live by faith in you, to trust you, to love you, to embrace you, to bear witness of you that though difficulties come still, we trust in you. I pray for me, for us, that we are prepared for whatever happens in this place or the moment we leave, that we're prepared to meet you, we're prepared to die, we're prepared even to suffer, trusting in you and the very work of Christ. Be with those who minister among us. Uh, We all do ministry, Father, in various places. Bless that this week in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our classrooms. God, that we may be lights, we might be salt. For those that we've commissioned to go, for Mark and Brenda Brown, for Lauren Gish with Campus Crusade, we pray for them most especially today that you would grant them grace to know that you are sovereign, that you are with them, that you're ordering their steps, and that you're the one who's sovereign over this word of grace, and that you will call to yourself all those whom you've chosen, and you will work in them. I pray we see fruit, Jesus. Father, may we with the prophet Habakkuk be able to say and live this, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flocks be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet we will rejoice in the Lord, we will take joy in the God of our salvation. God the Lord is our strength. He makes our feet like the deer's. He makes us tread on high places. May that be true for us in Jesus' name. Amen. The response this morning to our benediction is for us to sing the doxology that is not insignificant. 
It is not to be taken lightly. For people who live in the world as we do, to say praise God from whom all blessings flow is not a small thing. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore together. Let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here.